Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Netflix has done a great job of denigrating the value of content. Uh, and the net result is uh, the, the people who make content have to become also distributors in that platform. Uh, those who stay out, who just want to make, quote, good movies or good TV shows, uh, it's a perilous task if you have to rely on the good graces of a large company to quote, in your case, book your act. So the value proposition has changed for what the value of uh, a movie is because of the streaming platforms have uh, denigrated the pricing model for content. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Hope you're having a great 2020. I know I am very excited about this year and I can't be happier about the future and not just for myself, but for all of you listening. I wish you the best this year. You're going to have a great year, I can guarantee it. I feel it. I know it sounds strange, but you guys have been so supportive of the show and me that I can't help but have those positive feelings. So as corny as it is, thank you, thank you, thank you. If you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz on Instagram or Twitter or at BarryKatz.com. And I'm very excited about my episode today with Ben Feingold. This guy is impactful, inspirational and a truly incredible person in our business, and what a resource. You're going to get so much out of this. And before I get started, I want you to know that I recorded this episode at Ben's offices in a conference room, and the acoustics were not really great for a podcast, so if the sound seems a little bit off, just bear with it. Get through it, because what you're about to hear is tremendously educational, And it's incredible what this man has been through. So without further ado, I will introduce him and we will get going. 
Ben Feingold is a producer and current CEO of Samuel Goldwyn Films and the former president of Columbia TriStar Motion Picture Group, a division of Sony Pictures Entertainment based in Culver City. Under his leadership, Columbia TriStar Home Entertainment was at the forefront of the successful worldwide launch of the DVD format in conjunction with Sony, Toshiba, and Warner Brothers. Mr. Feingold was also president of Sony Pictures Digital Studios division, comprised of the DVD Center, the High Definition Center, the post-production facilities, and worldwide product fulfillment. Known as the king of film distribution, Feingold made a name for himself when he was responsible for the overall filmed entertainment strategy of Sony Pictures. In addition, he was the former president and chief executive of Columbia TriStar Home Entertainment, the worldwide home entertainment division of Sony Pictures Entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, I know you're going to learn a lot from this man. Please welcome my guest today, Ben Feingold. Thank you, Barry. All right. <laughs> so my first question is, you've been involved in so many different things, and we're going to cover a lot of those things. But the first thing I want to ask you is, how have you been able to ride the wave of all the different kind of technologies and processes and different ways that content is delivered to the masses and still stand and be at this company and presumably increase their revenue every year after you've started doing it the old-fashioned way? and then seen so many different incarnations. How do you do that? How do you make it work successfully at every step of how technology has worked in our business? It's a very good question, and I'll do my best. Uh, I think the first thing is to be intellectually curious, uh, which I always have been and will always, always will be. Uh, curious about uh, how people are, how people change, what technology does. Uh, follow young people. Uh, there's a bias that we all have that everybody, when you speak with people, that you assume that everybody has the same knowledge base as you, but it's not true. Uh, leave aside educational differences. It's really about age experiences. You know, it's different if you grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, or now. So uh, the key to success is uh, intellectual curiosity, hard work, and follow the trends of what young people do. Uh, and don't be sentimental about what was. Uh, it's okay to be sentimental about what was, because it's wonderful to be sentimental. But if you want to be, continue to be successful, you have to look forward and watch uh, how young people uh, are consuming content. Let's just take a movie that is a franchise that everybody knows. So let's just say Spider-Man, which you were involved with early on in your career. Let's pretend there's a new Spider-Man movie coming out and it's whatever, the prequel, the spider, whatever it is. Is it possible 
with an experiment if no one would ever do it, but in your opinion, pretend we remove all social media from the equation. Everything that's used in the last 10 or 15 years and we just take Spider-Man and we launch it the way people used to launch it, would it still be as successful? Uh, I think it would be. Uh, I think it's a fascinating suggestion. Uh, uh, the reason it would be successful is the absence of news becomes news. The absence of social media becomes uh, curiosity, um, and sometimes scarcity can be a very powerful marketing tool in the success of a franchise. Yeah, because I think to myself in the comedy world how Dave Chappelle has no social media yet. If you find out like the day of that he's at Madison Square Garden and would be sold out because he's an established brand and he doesn't have to do things the way other people used to do them. But for newer movies, much less likely to be successful without the way things are done now. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, if it's not a franchise yet, uh, you have to find a marketing way to make something meaningful in a world where there's saturation and competition for mindshare. Uh, if the concept is so powerful and so strong, it's possible that uh, the uh, curiosity can make it a success. Uh, but I would think that that would be uh, the exception rather than the rule. How long have you embraced the term that comes over your umbrella in your life, the king of film distribution. How uh, long have you been embracing that? And was there a point in time where you said, hey, you know what? I'm not that guy. I, I, I don't think I'm that. I've never been that guy. Uh, I've been <laughs> called uh, Blu-ray Ben uh, for launching uh, and setting the standards for Blu-ray, uh, which was a whole book. Uh, I launched DVD in 1996 in the U.S. and 1997 in Europe. Blu-ray and I think it was 2002. Uh, so, uh, I would say, how do I say it this way? I certainly, I was never a theatrical distribution person. Uh, I understood theatrical distribution very well, but it wasn't the best use of my time. Um, but uh, certainly uh, I have been uh, very influential in the rollout, uh, growth morphing and continuing success of video uh, uh, over the past 25, 30 years. So when you, were you also involved obviously in VHS and beta? Yes. Uh, it, it predated my arrival, but I was involved in. Uh, I came to the. I came to Columbia Pictures Entertainment in 1988. By that time, the format war between VHS and Beta was over. How long 
was the format war for beta and VHS? I believe it was about three years. Uh, and so there were many different formats. Sony was sponsored a beta. Uh, the Victor company, JVC, was VHS. Sony ended up losing the format war, but losing the battle, but winning the war. Explain to our audience how that happened. Um, so, uh, Sony wanted, beta was a better format than VHS. Higher quality. Higher quality. Uh, but VHS was cheaper to make. Uh, and, uh, at the time the studios that were involved, and again, this slightly predated my uh, entry into the industry, preferred inexpensive to quality. Sony under Akio Morita, always believed first, second, and third job was quality. Um, but uh, for many reasons, uh, VHS won mostly because it was cheaper. But then Sony won the war because they entered the software business, they entered the manufacturing business, uh, and they were much more broadly uh, deployed around the globe than the people who had the patents in uh, VHS. Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, Instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. And I don't really remember the beta situation, but I remember the VHS tape, for those of you who are too young to remember, you could record three different lengths of time. So in other words, you could leave your house and, and you could record for six hours, you could record for four hours, or you could record for two hours on the same tape. It just was a lesser quality each way. Beta didn't have the two, four, or six, did it? No. So it was just one thing? Yes. God, I remember I used to leave the house and just uh, for the night and record everything. I never understood the VCR. I just essentially had a $400 clock in my living room. I didn't really know what was going on there with that. But the, So VHS wins, and then in 95, 96, you're face-to-face -face with the rollout of DVD. Yeah. Now... Obviously, you have the people in the VHS market who are probably antsy about it because they're going to lose their thing. So how did you be a part of that in the beginning? What happened? So uh, uh, I was at Columbia Pictures, and then after Sony bought the company, I was moved out to Los Angeles to be head of corporate development. And then the then chairman of Sony said... Uh, you deal with Japan. You deal with all the technology stuff. 
uh, we're focused on making movies. So I was given the job of liaisoning uh, with Japan. And the Japanese at Sony were mostly interested, almost exclusively, in the technology meets movies. Not so much the movies per se. They would say, make good movies. That's what they would say at a board meeting, make good movies. So uh, we started developing the DVD format, which was an outgrowth of CD. So, uh, and the reason was we had built in the early to mid 90s, the beginning of a VHS sell-through business. At the time, people were renting videos and you could buy videos at like a Walmart. Uh, But at the time, Disney had about 35, 40% market share in VHS. The only movies that people really bought were family movies. Lady and the Tramp, Three Caballeros, you know. Uh, so we were desperate to get a piece of the revenue from movies selling, so we needed a new format. You know, people weren't, males weren't buying. So uh, we, we worked closely with uh, Japan. We worked with the engineers. I did. I would go back and forth. And uh, then they came and presented the first, what was supposed to be DVD. Did the first DVD have the menu or did it have no menu? Uh, So the first DVD that we saw had no menu. Uh, The device was in a caddy. So a caddy is like a plastic control thing up in front of over the disc and it would sit in like a cartridge and it was had a running length of 70 minutes and I remember maximum 70 minutes yeah how could you do movies if it was only 70 minutes okay so I'm at a meeting and with the chairman of Sony at the time uh, Norio Oga and he they showed us and and I said to said Oga-san the the caddy is beautiful, uh, but we have two serious concerns. Number one, having a caddy on top of a disc, it's too expensive. We need to have these DVDs be made at a very cheap price so we can sell them to in the mass markets at 10 to to $20. The caddy itself is going to cost like... 50 cents. It's too expensive. It doesn't do anything for the movie. I said the other thing is the running length. It's what your comment is, Barry. We said, I th- we, we said, I said, we, when you showed us the specification, we looked at our catalog. We ran all of our movies through the catalog. So we need a format which would permit 98% of our movies to fit on one disc. So we need a running length that we need to increase the compression so that we can at least have close to two hours versus 70 minutes. Uh, and to their credit, they went back to Japan and they uh, uh, increase the compression to come out what was then uh, 
uh, MMCD. So there was a format war for DVD also at the time. So Toshiba had a format and Sony had a format. Ultimately they merged and uh, I was involved with the major motion picture companies and the major electronics companies in setting the final standards of that on behalf of Sony and also Sony Pictures. So Sony and Toshiba patented the DVD technology. So even when Disney had their whole catalog on DVD, they were paying royalties to yes. Sony Toshiba. Yes. So the fights on the format war were all about royalties back to the manufacturers of the discs, of the, the, the IP, the owners of the IP for the discs, uh, for the Blu-ray or the, in the case of Blu-ray, or the DVD in the case of the DVD machines. We even had Dell involved in the patent pool because they were going to play back on computers. Uh, I had to make a deal, I remember, with Dell for Blu-ray and for DVD. Uh, and everybody had an opinion of what it should have. And everybody on the studio side wanted cheap royalties. And the electronics companies uh, wanted high royalties for bringing this technology to market. And uh, it was one of the most rewarding, but also probably the most painful part of my job was to be in the middle of all of that fighting to settle the final formats. Um, I want to go deeper into this because this is really fascinating. Look, when Apple launched the App Store, mm -hmm. okay, there's no advertising, mm -hmm. there's no promotion, there's no direction to tell you what an app is, what you're doing, how you operate it, what's happening, what is an app, yet miraculously it becomes a phenomenon and everybody uses apps. So, what was the strategy with the rollout of the DVD and the DVD player, and what were the first pieces of content? What was the first DVD for sale on the marketplace that was put out? Um, there were competing DVD players that were set in the first. In the uh, so I believe. Toshiba launched their uh, format two months before DVD launched. And I was trying feverishly to get a machine into the market so we didn't lose the format war. Uh, and working with Japan, because Japan was late in delivering the, tech, the, the machine. Um, we went two weeks, uh, two months later. I remember I released my first titles were The Fifth Element. Legends of the Fall, uh, I think My Best Friend's Wedding, uh, and Jerry Maguire. And my theory was if I released really good movies, people would think it's a really good format. Jerry Maguire is one of the first movies I was ever involved with with Jay Moore. Yeah. That movie, by the way, I should say, and I'm not as big a film aficionado as you are because you've studied thousands, thousands of films. But when I watch that film, I think to myself, that's as perfect a film as I've ever seen. And, and you've seen everything. So you tell me if I'm wrong. I remember the green light meeting when I was at Sony. So I was running home video, and the way uh, films were green lit is the people at the studio would advocate the movie. 
uh, there was a head of the company who would have the final green light, and each division that was contributing financial money to the uh, payback of the movie and the profit would have to give projections on the movies. So I was running home video at the time for, for Sony Columbia Pictures. It was about 60% of the revenue. 60%? At the time. Uh, the next biggest source was uh, theatrical, then international TV, and then domestic TV. So we'd have very complicated financial spreadsheets about what a movie would do at 40 million a box office, at 80, at 100, at 200. What would happen if it did 20 billion yen in Japan? So we had very complicated financial models. Uh, but going back to the launch of DVD, um, was fascinating because the, a key decision early on was one that Warren Lieberfarb, who was running Warner Home Video, and that I did. We decided at the, at that time we were selling VHS tapes for about sixty five dollars to Blockbuster. Would, Blockbuster would then rent the movies to people. They'd rent about forty times. They would charge about three dollars, make one hundred twenty dollars. They would pay back their sixty-five to the studio and keep the other half. That was their model. So we were going to launch DVDs. So block, we went to Blockbuster, which was the first big retailer. We said we're going to launch this new format. Isn't this great? And they said, Well, we can't pay you sixty-five dollars. There's no machines. We'll just lose money. Uh, they were right. So. Uh, we decided when we first launched DVD that we would only charge $24.95 or $19.95 to rent or buy a movie instead of the $65 until the installed base went up. And so our partners in launching it were people who were not in the VHS business in the beginning. Our big partner was Best Buy, which had a double win because they would sell machines and then they could sell the movies. They really weren't selling VHS tapes. They were selling VHS machines. So Best Buy and then Amazon. Amazon was selling VHS tapes, but since Amazon didn't have to have a lot of overhead and had a central distribution center, it was easy for us to make DVDs and then have them be sold through the Amazon channels. So what DVD did at the beginning was create a whole new ecosystem of retailers that were not carrying movies at the time. Uh, and I don't think Blockbuster came into DVD until 18 months later. When did you know that DVD was going to work? Uh, One of my favorite lines from Jerry Maguire is, you had me at hello. <laughs> I knew before we launched it was going to be a huge hit. I watched people interact. And I remember saying to people in Japan, you need to be able to put in a disc, hit play, and the movie comes up. Make it really simple for people at the time. Uh, before, with VHS, you'd have to watch all of these trailers in front of it. I never made people watch trailers in front of mine. You could watch trailers, but I never made you watch trailers. Um, uh, but the picture quality was excellent. Uh, 
it was sexy. Uh, and when we launched DVD, uh, for those who are young, you have to remember, we launched DVD before there was PlayStation, before there was Xbox. Um, there was only Nintendo cartridges. Cell phones were the size of large bricks. We had no competition when we launched that format. There was no internet other than dial-up, very slow dial-up. Uh, there was no deeply deployed video game. And so young males became big proponents of DVD. And young males never bought VHS tapes. So they would go down every Tuesday and buy buckets of them. I remember selling Desperado, uh, Fifth Element, uh, anything with action, with visuals. Uh, uh, but the install base went through the roof up front. Uh, the key was to keep the manufacturers competing with each other to keep dropping the hardware prices so that people could afford to buy the machines. Uh, I had no doubt that uh, it was going to be a big success because it had random access. In other words, you could go in and out of pretty much any spot easily. And VHS was a linear scroll, and which is kind of painful for impatient people. Um, anyway. Uh, which was the first time somebody realized, okay, let's make this experience bigger. Let's make behind the scenes content and bonus footage and director's cuts and let's have commentary and all these different things. When did that come into play and who was the first person to say, hey, we need more in here? Um, we set up a department in the beginning, as did Warner Home Video. Uh, uh, so we wanted the product to be best in show, uh, better than the movie. Uh, the movie is a linear experience uh, as a rental. So we were selling to own the movie for the rest of your life. So to own the movie for the rest of your life, we had to bring it up, bring it. And so we wanted to bring uh, the best of breed. So in terms of director's commentaries or behind the scenes or for like a Spider-Man, you know, we could show how the movie was storyboarded. Uh, uh, there were all sorts of things. And we actually had a department. The department was helpful in going back even for older movies and interviewing people such as I remember we did a mystery science theater format uh, for Ghostbusters with, I don't think Bill Murray did it, but pretty much all the other actors did it and Ivan Reitman. And uh, for a lot of the directors, this was fun. You know, it was memory lane uh, and they had uh, the length of the movie to say whatever they wanted without any interruption from us. So. But we were selling a lifetime subscription to the movie. And for that, we thought we'd have to bring them more than the movie. I mean, some filmmakers didn't want to participate, but most did. Amazing. Yeah, I think that myself, when I started, I had this little comedy club in the basement of this place called Play It Again Sam's. And the owner 
was a visionary and he had a restaurant he had a little folk bar he had a comedy club downstairs and in the big room he had couches and he had a movie bar and so his thing was he bought the films that were coming out of the theaters and had them delivered to his place and showed them in his place and served beer and food and then I remember when VHS came out and Blockbuster opened, that room just died. And so I think, and I sit across from you, and you've been a part of so many technologies that have launched and died. And so I want to go into the next incarnation. So Blu-ray comes in at what point in time, how far, how many years of DVD before Blu-ray tried to break into the market and eventually did break into the market? Uh, so it's very, it, it's actually a fascinating question. Uh, four years into, into DVD, it was, we were growing at about 30% a year. It was a monster growth target. I noticed that some of the sales on the new releases were slowing down. And, uh, I called a couple other people in the industry and I said, I kind of think we're screwed here. I mean, I think we've lost young men. Uh, we're losing young men. The people would go down and buy DVDs. Uh, and uh, at the time, video games were just being pushed hard. So I think young men were migrating. We'd been out four years. I actually went to Japan. I said, I think we need a new format. They're like, you're crazy. We're only into this for four years. I, I, I said, we're losing steam. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Where were the people going from, you said we're losing steam, where were these, where was this? They were buying less movies. Why? I think they were either playing video games or television was getting better. Uh, uh, I don't think they were going to uh, the buy mail Netflix at the time. Uh, you know, in the first year of DVD, the adopters were buying like 20 or 30 movies a piece. And then it started to go down. And I'm like, it's going down. We were delivering so much money to the studios that they didn't want to hear what I had to say. Because I was saying, we need a new format. And Japan was saying, we haven't. 
I remember speak, speaking specifically to the head of Disney Home Video and saying, uh, we need a new format. And they're like, you're joking. We're only into this. We, Disney has only been up two and a half years. Disney came late. And I said, yeah, I'm noticing early adopter sales are going down. And so, uh, and Napster, th there was the beginning of Napster and internet music piracy. Uh, some people were going there uh, for music piracy. And I'm like, I think we need a new format. So I was encouraging Japan to come out with Blu-ray. And so we would actually obsolesce ourselves. In other words, Blu-ray would obsolesce DVD early. It, it ended up taking a number of years to get the format launched because most of the studios were saying, we don't want to support a new format, we're doing fine. And I'm like, it's starting to tail off. You need to ob obsolesce yourself if you want to be a winner. Like Intel obsolesces itself every two years by creating a whole new set of uh, uh, chipsets to replace prior chipsets. That's how they stay Intel. So, uh, but the, the second format war turned out to be even more uh, acrimonious than the DVD, principally because there was so much money being made for DVD sales that all the people who were stakeholders making money uh, had a, a big point of view and couldn't be moved so easily to support a new format. Okay, so, but the format does come out, and when the format first comes out of Blu-ray, firstly, how many years was it again that DVD had been out from the moment it went out for the first time with Jerry Maguire and those titles until the first Blu-ray disc and player came out? How many years was that? It was... Uh about seven to eight, seven and a half years. Okay, so you got seven years of training people now, and now very few people have VHS tapes, is DVD, and now Blu-ray. Was Sony was initiating Blu-ray, was it not? Yes. So Sony was the developer, the manufacturer, the licensor, and trying to convince everybody to go to Blu-ray, but everybody wasn't convinced. And it, from what I remember, and I'm not an expert in this, you are, it never replaced DVD. The best it ever got was you'd see the ad, you know, you can get it on DVD or Blu-ray. And I never personally, and I'm just one person here sitting here, I never understood the value of Blu-ray over DVD. The value added was never enough to make me stop my habit of just doing DVD. But your opinion was, and many others was, that the value added was substantial enough to get rid of DVD and go into Blu-ray. Why did you think that the value that added would take it over the top and DVD would go away? Uh, it wasn't meant for DVD to go away, but it's... It wasn't? It was meant to create a... to give the consumer a better product. So, in other words, all things being equal, you'd rather have high-definition quality uh, visual or, or higher multi-channel audio capacity. 
or internet connectivity potentially with a disc than what you had. It may have not been worth it to you, but if you can give the consumer a 4K TV at the same price as a 2K TV, that's what you should be doing. Um, for most people, they're not quality conscious. But ultimately, uh, in order to have a product to compete in the future, uh, it's great to have the best. If you want to survive, you have to have the best quality product. Which um, goes back to what you said in the very beginning was Sony, the most conscious, prevalent mission statement was let's have the best technology. And so at the height of Blu-ray, the best it ever got, what was the market share in DVDs so between the, the regular DVDs and Blu-rays? It's a very good question. So Blu-ray has never achieved more than about a 20% market share for all disc sales. Uh, and DVD still is uh, superior in sales to uh, Blu-ray uh, at this moment in time. And so this is another thing that seems so odd to me, and I'm sorry, I feel like I'm out of it here. I haven't owned a DVD player in, I think, seven years mm -hmm. or six years. And I don't plan on getting one, and I don't plan on having a CD or a DVD or anything. And I remember something, and probably you're going to touch base on this, when I was working with Dane Cook and he launched his first album, the physical sales of the CD were 90% and the digital sales were 10%. Yeah. By the time he launched the second album, it had reversed and 90% were digital and 10% were mm -hmm. CDs. So at this point in time, you're here at this company mm -hmm. and you are so knowledgeable about everything what's the DVD market compared to where it was at its height? So at its height, let's just take 100%. At its height, it was 100% and zero would be nothing at all. Where is it now? Uh, I would say uh, I left Sony in 2006, uh, just after the peak. Uh, between us, I, I saw uh, the writing on the wall for physical media at the time. I was pushing Sony into the digital era of, non-disc business. I wanted to get into, I bought, uh, at the time we, we were looking to buy YouTube. We made an offer to buy YouTube before it was bought by Google. We didn't get it. We ended up buying a company called Grouper, which turned into Crackle. Uh, I was a big believer in online movies at the time, uh, even though I was going to obsolesce the business that I contributed to uh, building. I saw the writing on the wall at the time. Uh, I watched young people, consumer behavior. I had a hard time convincing people at the big company that the writing was on the wall because we were sending them so much money, they didn't want to hear it. Um, but uh, right now, DVD, I would say, for on a studio movie, is maybe 12 tops 15% of what it was. 
in 2007 or 2008. That's how small it's become. Uh, I took over the home video division of Sony in 1994. Uh, by the time I left, it was four and a half times as big as when I started it. And now it's smaller than when I started at Sony. So, way up and way down. So I want you to explain to our audience something that they probably don't know, and I'm not embarrassed to say that I don't know. So, let's just take a movie that we're both familiar with, that we both love, mm -hmm. and that was one of the first, Jerry Maguire. So, Jerry Maguire gets sent out across the country and the world in DVDs, and also goes to the blockbusters as well as everything. So, in the physical distribution era there, mm -hmm. What would be, after it was all said and done, what would be the cost to the studio of each DVD approximately from all their work? And not, not from the amateurization of the movie. I'm just talking about the putting the movie on the disc, the art, the packaging, the wrapping, and sending it out. And what would it cost the studio to do that per disc? Um, okay, so first, uh, one point of clarification. Uh, when we had Jerry Maguire, I actually released it as VHS sell-through. I sold over seven and a half million copies throughout mass merchants in America. Okay, you can own a piece of Tom Cruise. I think it was $14.99. Uh, it was, our wholesale price was about $12, so that's about $100 million cash that came into the company from VHS. We then went six months later and put it out on DVD. So it didn't initiate as a DVD because it was right at the cusp of the format launch. At the time, a VHS tape would cost us probably uh, 35 to 50 cents. With all the packaging all, and everything. Maybe another 10 cents for the sleeve, the yeah. packaging, and, and, and shrink and, wrap. And, and, and it would sell at, at the store. And how much would the store give you for the product? They would. We were charging $12. $12. $12. Got it. So you're making around $11 yeah. or $11.5 yeah. per thing. So explain to the audience now how movie companies make their money with digital and non-physical distribution, what they're giving when it goes to, let's say, the iTunes store or the Apple store, as it's now being called, and let's say Jerry Maguire were going out to that Apple store. Let's just take Jerry Maguire. What the difference make? So it goes to the Apple store, but yet when you go to rent or buy Jerry Maguire, it's not as much as it is on DVD or so how does the studio make the same amount of money or more with this transition from physical to non-physical? Well, for digital, um, there is no cost to manufacture. So to deliver digital file, it's, it's basically, it's functionally no cost. Uh, the bigger issue is how do the studio survive without money from home video? I mean, the studio, big business studio model is broken right now. Uh, people like Netflix, I would sell a movie for 1995 to own for life. 
for $15, you can get all you can eat at a very bad smorgasbord, you know, with all sorts of food, whether it's a Korean action movie or uh, Bollywood or, uh, you know, an original, quote original, as if it was original, a movie of one of these services. So the value proposition has changed for what the value of uh, a movie is because of the streaming platforms have uh, denigrated the pricing model for content. So if it's broken mm -hmm. and you've been there every step of the way watching, mm -hmm. if you were in charge of fixing it, how would you fix it? Well, okay. So uh, now we're in 2019 and we're watching what people are doing. So in the case of Disney, they decided their way of fixing, instead of selling 16 million copies of Lion King at $20 a piece, or where they got 12, uh, as the model, you know, it used to be, they called it Disney DVD. It was DVD, but they decided it was Disney DVD, as if they had anything to do with inventing the format. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, if you repeat the story, to, a, a lot of times people believe it's true. So, uh, but, but Disney's done something very smart. I mean, they've decided uh, if you can't sell, if, if you're making a lot of money from physical media and you can't do it anymore because the pricing model has been denigrated by streaming services, you have to become your own streaming service. Uh, and then you'll manage your content production costs. Try to make a vig between what it costs to make the content, what your marketing and technology delivery costs are, and what you're getting from consumers. So uh, obviously Disney is morphing into a streaming company with its ownership of Hulu and now Disney Plus. Uh, Warner's, uh, Time Warner's announcing HBO Max as a add-on, that's their model. So I think uh, the re Netflix has done a great job of denigrating the value of content. Uh, and the net result is uh, the, the people who make content have to become also distributors in that platform. Uh, those who stay out, who just want to make, quote, good movies or good TV shows, uh, it's a perilous task if you have to rely on the good graces of a large company to quote, in your case, book your act or to license your content. But, uh, and in the case of Rupert Murdoch, I think he felt that he, uh, either because of age or desire, did not have uh, uh, a plan to morph Fox. So he, he sold Fox to Disney. Did that surprise you? Uh, it's only surprised me because he had not been really a seller of things, but uh, I think it was a good deal for both parties. Uh, I don't think he, I mean, Netflix has spent a lot of money. They've done a great job. I mean, I, they've denigrated the value of content, but they've done a great job of selling uh, uh, getting people hooked on the service. Uh, 
So, and that's very expensive. They borrowed a lot of money. They raised a lot of money in terms of uh, shareholder value. So, uh, in the age of the 80s, if you're Rupert Murdoch, you say either I let my children do this or uh, I have to defy the odds and live forever and, and, and have my wisdom. So, uh, I, was, I was not surprised that he sold. Only be, I was only surprised because he's generally not a seller. He's a buyer of things. But it was logical uh, in terms of stage of life as a, as a result. I just wanted to let you know if you ever want to get a gift for somebody special, you can do so at our merch store at berrycats.com. We have a ton of shirts in many different colors with a plethora of the most impactful quotes from the podcast that have resonated with you throughout the years. I know you're going to like them a lot. They're really, really special and of the highest, highest quality. And it's a special gift from me to you. For any item you choose, you can take an extra $5 off by just typing in the promo code Barry. So just go to BarryCats.com, to the store, check it out. I know you won't be disappointed and have a great, great holiday season. As you know, I was fortunate enough to do a documentary surrounding the only living person to ever admit to killing JFK from the grassy knoll. This is a guy who spent 50 years in prison, just got out. We have exclusive footage of his interview and over 20 different interviews, along with interviews with five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. Once you watch these videos, your perception of the world and what happened that day will change forever. It's incredible. Just go to ikilljfk.com. You can pick up the documentary I Killed JFK and the rare interviews of five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. I guarantee you, once you watch this footage, you will be blown away. To quote one of the experts in the film, when Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp, what do you think's at the bottom of the swamp? ikilljfk.com. Check it out. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next very special episode. The issue is what's a movie and what's a TV show? So I can't answer that question right now. So it used to be from a studio perspective, you would make a four quadrant movie which means a movie for everyone, eight to 80. So the future of the movie business is not movies for eight to 80. It's for one quadrant. So in other words, LGBT or Christian or urban. A four quadrant movie was like Jerry Maguire, you know, movie star, a movie star, comedy, broad. Uh, the future is not that type of movie anymore, but it's to target a, a specific genre. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're gone.
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.